Welcome to Leaders and Legends of Online Learning, a podcast dedicated to the experts. Thank you for listening. Each episode, we'll be learning from the world's leading thinkers and practitioners in online learning and linking to ideas relevant to online teaching, working with online learners, and digital education. You can listen to the experts and check their profiles and link to some of their work on our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com. I'm Mark Nichols, the interviewer in this episode. You'll meet Dr. Diane Conrad in this episode. Diane is retired following 33 years of award-winning scholarship and leadership in distance and online education, but she continues to be an active scholar and teacher, and learner and innovator. Her work in prior learning and assessment and her call for humanity in online education are highlighted in the conversation that follows. I'm talking with Dr. Diane Conrad, who's trying to retire after 33 years in distance and online education. Her career with Athabasca University has included multiple publications and several books, including some we'll talk about in this interview. She continues to teach and contract across distance education, including some international work. Diane, it's great to be talking with you. Thank you, Mark. I'm uh, very pleased to be here. Great. Can we start with a brief overview of your career and publications? Sure thing. Thank you. I have always uh, worn two hats in in my meandering career Mm. Uh, of financial necessity after obtaining a post-divorce position at the University of Alberta as a program manager for an adult education program, I doubled as a teacher. My wonderful mentor there, my first mentor, was Dr. Walter Archer of Community Mm. of Inquiry fame, along with um, Garrison, Anderson, and Rourke, all of whom I worked with at the University of Alberta. Those were really heady days, uh, great times. And I moved through several admin positions until I finished my PhD, at which time I took an academic position at the University of New Brunswick, again, in adult education, again, both directing a program and teaching in that program. Mm. The West Coast wasn't for me, though, and I was happy to return to Alberta to Athabasca University to take up a directorial position in the field of prior learning assessment, where I developed, Mm. expanded, and managed that process, which is especially important for an open university. Those were really good days, satisfying, cutting-edge work, good colleagues, and a lovely riverside town in the northern Alberta forest. Mm. At retirement time, which was in 2014, I relocated to Southwest Ontario to be closer to my family and to escape those harsh northern winters. I completed my master's at the University of Alberta on distance education in 1992. At that time, it was correspondence education. But I began my distance teaching with correspondence courses and progressed through all the generations of distance education, audio, video, and finally computer. I'm sure I've taught in every program that's been developed over the years. And most recently, (laughs) I've been teaching at master's and doctoral level for Athabasca on Moodle. So all through these years, from about 1994, I was also writing book chapters, journal articles, and presenting at conferences, sometimes with Walter and usually alone. I actually turned out to be a lone wolf writer for the most part. My topics ranged from prior learning assessment to online teaching and learning and uh, to online assessment most recently. The latter led to the 2018 publication of my first book, and in 2020, Um, My good colleague Paul Prinslow and I edited a hefty volume on open learning with 46 authors from around the world. And I have two books at press currently. Uh, Writing seems to have become my passion. 
So in sum, my career has had some really nice highlights, which I've been honored to receive. My first published article in the American Journal of Distance Education was awarded the Wiedermeyer Prize in Research in 2001-2002, and yeah. I've received some other best awards for my written work. I've qualified for three Shirk Research Grants. Those are the big ones in Canada. Two on my own and one with my colleague, Rory McGrail. I've been asked to chair two European Conference Best Article Juries, and I've received many invitations to present and serve as a panel member, some of those resulting from six years of co-editorship of the leading journal, Erodal, yeah. along with my colleague, Rory. In my earlier years, I also served as editor and assistant editor of other Canadian journals in adult and continuing education, sometimes working with my mentor, Walter Archer. That's the career in the nutshell, Mark. Mm. That's a, a fairly big nutshell, uh, obviously filled with a whole lot of activity and some very interesting uh, explorations there as well. Can you tell us a bit about the ideas and themes your work has provided, especially those you think are still pertinent today? That, that's an interesting question because I, when you retire, you sort of start to lose your, your relevance or, or you can lose your relevance. Mm. And being retired allows you the privilege of still being able to keep at it, but on your own terms. Yeah. I often say, as opportunities come my way, that if I were career building, I would be looking at things quite differently. But I am not career building, so <laughs> uh, I, I'm sort of like, you know, a wonderful free agent. Anyway, my interest in online learning has always been learner-centered and humanistic in nature. That focus has been quite consistent. I've also strongly, uh, right from the beginning, endorsed community, uh, and that was punctuated with um, an article in 2005 in the Canadian Journal of Distance Education, Building and Maintaining Community. I was never really into the technology part of the enterprise. My colleagues, especially Terry Anderson, um, mm. were, and we used to have this discussion all the time back in those good days at the University of Alberta, I've always seen technology as a tool, not as a driver. Personally, I ever only learned to do what I had to do on the computer in spite of all the platforms and generations of distance education that I've taught on. So as I got older and technology advanced and matured, I knew that I did not want to keep up. So that provided a good impetus for retirement. Uh, that said, I continued to use the technologies I knew. And what was interesting, Mark, was that as I progressed along with my teaching post-retirement, I became aware of the fact that many of my students were much more adept at technology than I was. So I learned a lot from them, but it was kind of over overwhelming to me the way the field and the affordances of various platforms that could be integrated into your online course were, were just exploding. And I really mm. didn't want to take the time, time where I could have been writing about stuff I know to stay up with these technologies. Anyway, yeah. just a sidebar there. So I think my interest in the learner is more important today than ever. I think that focus has become obvious to others, at least I hope so, during our ongoing COVID trauma. I've heard and seen endless stories from disgruntled learners that revolve around the lack of teacherness and community. When I mentored university faculty through the pivot to online, uh, I, I think that was in 2020, one-on-one, -on -one, they thought the technology would be the problem, but it wasn't. It was their ability to reach their learners as, as caring human beings.
So that sort of captures the themes in past. I have developed recently an interest in uh, online assessment. And that came uh, directly out of my experience teaching online and trying to develop uh, good assessment tools that suited the online model rather than, you know, just dragging the old stuff over from face-to-face, which an awful lot of folks, unfortunately, have done. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's probably a good time to put a, a plug-in for your 2018 book, which is available freely online from Athabasca University Press. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you for that uh, that free unsolicited plug. I, I must say, I think it's a wonderful book. And um, maybe there'll be a second edition one day. So in, in the book, and, and you've just mentioned assessments, so I, I do want to pick up on one of the themes. You've, you talk about prior learning assessment and uh, recognition of prior learning. How has that been working for you? I mean, you're a pioneer in that area. How has that changed over the years? Thanks for acknowledging my work in that area. I have felt very pioneerish, and I have been labeled the queen of prior learning assessment <laughs> from some of my colleagues. It, it worked for me and for the students I was able to impact and, and for Athabasca University quite well. I wanted to come back to Athabasca, or rather to Alberta, and I had a very lovely colleague that I'd known for, at that point, almost 20 years, uh, Dr. Jeff Peruniak, uh, who unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago, way too soon. And um, I had started working with Jeff and with Walter Archer on prior learning assessment for the program I managed at the University of Alberta. And they needed to step it up at Athabasca. And Jeff Jeff was able to kind of, you know, stick handle the the job description and and turn it over to be an academic position, which is what it needs to be. It's an academic learning process. It needs to have an academic champion. It did not yeah. before I got there. They didn't understand it as an academic process. They thought it was an administrative process, all transcripts and stuff. That's transfer credit. Entirely mm-hmm. different. Mm-hmm. So they brought me in, and I built up that program and marketed and managed it and wrote about it. And we had a wonderful thing going. Now, I think I have to say, sadly, that they probably are not operating as, um, how shall I say, beautifully. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And in my mind, properly, since I left, you know, it was was an uphill battle, uh, as prior learning assessment implementation often is in a post-secondary institution, because a lot of the, especially the old guard, they don't understand it. They want all the learning to come out of their particular course, their particular Mm -hmm. curriculum, and they just don't get it, uh, quite frankly, in spite of what John Dewey said, that, you know, all learning arises from experience. So, I'm not quite sure how it went, and because I invested so much of myself into building that system up, I have never thoroughly gone back and asked, how is it doing? But mm-hmm. while I was in that golden period of uh, being the director of that particular process at Athabasca, I got to travel an awful lot, Mark, because yeah. other people wanted to know how we did it. So I was in, in 
Europe and I was in, oh, I don't know, the United States and here and there. And I did a lot of presentations in the United States through their uh, particular association, KO, and in Canada through CAPLA, our association, and at Eden in Europe, uh, mm, European mm. Association of Distance Education. And um, yeah, it was, it was a good time. So for me, it, it was fabulous. I learned so much about learning. And I developed, oh, websites and handbooks and instruments, all of which, by the way, are still up on the Athabasca University website. Every document that we, we developed, every, you know, instructional manual, students' um, information, it's all there still. So, so that gives me hope that they're, they're carrying on. And mm. that's all I know about that. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Actually, one thing that occurred to me, um, particularly in reading elements of your book, to do with uh, open assessment, uh, the prior learning assessment, uh, also you mentioned earlier of community. How do these things work effectively at scale? What, what, what have you seen that would indicate that we can do these things uh, for massive numbers of students really well? It, it all depends on course design, of course, and course design is intricately meshed with um, instructor predilection and, uh, you know, the whole thing um, runs together. I've been researching lately and interested in MOOCs uh, for a number of reasons, as well as having mentioned them briefly in the 2018 book. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they turned up again in the 2020 book, which was about um, opening learning. It seems that currently because of the MOOC models and because of the increase in non-university-based courses from the big providers, that the whole notion of community has sort of gone down the drain, so to speak, sort of diminished Mm -hmm. that, that focus on building community, which I've always prized so much as a, a core uh, facet of online teaching, and um, I, I do believe that the literature has supported this over the years, has supported the notion of the instructor being incredibly important and central, um, a success factor, if you will, to online learning, but also the notion of community, if people can get together virtually, talk to each other, form, you know, a safe climate, friendships, uh, et cetera, like that. So at scale, and we'll talk about MOOCs, it seems like that notion has sort of gone by. And I was going to talk about that later um, Mm -hmm. because it's connected to the whole notion of micro-credentials and some of the changes in higher education and, how shall we say, um, a parallel higher education world that is not actually higher education, but professional education mm, mm. at an advanced level. In a large class, if I were teaching a large class, uh, and I have not taught really large classes because I teach again at, at, at graduate and postgraduate level, yeah. uh, there's there's some skill involved in managing community. It, it's really quite a thoughtful process that needs to be carefully designed. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people who teach large courses, including in the MOOC format, depend on uh, graduate students and TAs and um, yeah. some of the population within the course body to manage. I had the opportunity recently to teach a MOOC. I did not. And one of the reasons that I, I did really 
was not enchanted with it was I couldn't possibly figure out how to manage the course the way I would want to manage it, how, uh, how I could create this sense of community and be the instructor I wanted to be. I talked to a lot of my colleagues who had taught MOOCs, including my old colleague yeah. Stephen Downs. I worked with Stephen years and years and years ago and, and uh, we had a beautiful conversation and he had to admit he didn't really know. They, when they first started teaching the MOOCs, Stephen and George Siemens and Dave Cormier, mm. they sort of divided the tasks up. Somebody did the marking and somebody, Dave, he's the techie guy, he would do the, the technology. And uh, I couldn't really get a, a straight answer about whether they cared or fostered this sense of community. So I kept running into, into uh, brick walls. Uh, no matter who I talk to. So I really don't have an answer to that part of the question. Mm. I think nobody does. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it is probably one of the major themes that we need to look at at the moment in online education, the difference between uh, a more community-centered, where you can get that community of inquiry happening, and more of a, um, a massive uh, but effective higher education as well, which is fully scalable. Yeah, that would be an interesting area. Yeah, and I know um, both Rory McGreal and um, Wayne McIntosh, and we've done some work together, and they're always on about scalability because they're always they're talking about courses that were different from, from my experience. My experience has been very, I guess one could say, elitist, and mm. and privileged, you know, working working a doctoral program with a small registration, working a master's program. So those are problems that I never personally had to confront. And again, mm. I sort of had to confront them recently, and I I chose not to. Again, mm. if I hadn't mm. been retired and uh, trotting on my own path, I wouldn't have that luxury. Well, Diane, you're my first interviewee for the year 2022. So what are your observations about online learning and education at the present time? I worry about it a lot. I, I read the literature and I, I see and have been associated with colleagues who have a growing interest in artificial intelligence. Mm. There is um, a lot of this in 2021. And I know there's a really strong and, and, and intelligent scholarship on artificial intelligence, but I'm also sensitive to the pushback and concerns that uh, are, are uh, spoken about it. And... I'm especially concerned about the application of uh, automatic marking programs for online assessment because it seems to be one of the answers, one of the approaches and one of the answers. And, and I know there are times when that can be successful, but I really worry about losing the humanity and what we need in, in grading. Now, that leads us to a whole other discussion. For example, Jesse Stommel just published an article that talks about how he's throwing grading out the window. He's just not going to do that anymore. And someone that he cited in his article said, yeah, uh, she didn't want to do it anymore either. And it was just terrible and made her feel so bad. And I, I get that. I don't think there's any instructors who enjoy doing that part of the job. And I know that it's extremely subjective, except if you're dealing with hard numbers or hard science. And of course, that's not my uh, area. So I can't speak um, about that. But 
I somehow think that we have to do that, and we have to do that compassionately and fairly, critically and uh, and qualitatively. So when I I see um, literature that's um, examining in detail the efficacy of using artificial intelligence and um, uh, you know programming methods to do grading, it it kind of bothers me. Now, I also know that there's a group of scholars uh, and academics working on inserting emotion into artificial intelligence programs so that the program can respond on an emotional level when required, which to me sounds, wow, you know, totally out there, but there are people who are actually doing this. So I, I know that the effort is being made. Now, let me see. What else is bothering me right now or on my mind? The pandemic. I am just amazed at the amount of literature that's been produced both as monographs and journal articles, not to mention all the online appearances about the effects of of COVID and the pandemic on learning. It's just amazing uh, how fast this this stuff has come out. I actually wrote something myself because I was very, very concerned with the um, attitude and the work that needed to be done with uh, faculty. And I mentioned earlier that I worked one-on-one mentoring for uh, a university when they undertook the pivot and um, it was a shocking experience. So I wrote an article. I published it in um, an online academic site for Ontario University teachers in three parts. It's called Mind the Gap, hmm. taken from, you know, the um, British subway system. Yeah. And yeah. talks about the gap between face-to-face teaching and, uh, and pivoting to online. Anyway, we've got a pandemic that still shows no sign of going away. And online learning was pushed into that position of being sort of an unwanted savior with reluctant uh, audience. And my opinion at the time was, and and probably still continues to be, is that the massive and rapid pivot was not accomplished well. If the will was there by the folks who had to do it, there was still not enough time for them to do it well. And that flawed transition sets, in my opinion, online learning back in the minds of potential learners. I have seen over the years an expectant and um, eager learner um, signing up for an online course that's not being delivered or managed properly and Mm -hmm. then coming away Mm -hmm. thinking it was the worst experience of their life. And to change that, to turn that around after you've gone through some, you know, a horrible debacle of an online course where you have to be immersed in the technology that might be new for you and, and you don't have your folks around because there's no community being established. And it's just, it'd be a terrible experience. And that's what I've seen and have worried about happening to so many folks who have been pushed into what they call emergency remote learning, which mm. is totally wrong moniker for that. Now, the irony is if, if that learning actually works in some venues at subsistence level, then what impetus is there to improve it uh, if people are actually chugging through it and getting a grade and moving on, which we have to admit, in spite of our idealism, is all many people want. 
<laughs> so I hope mm-hmm. I hope that research continues to follow the progress of um, online development uh, as far as this pivot goes, and that we get some good qualitative data gathered from the uh, pivoteers, and um, mm-hmm. that will come. That will come. You know, it's uh, it takes some time to develop a good literature on these things. Although, yeah. as I said earlier, folks really jumped off the line right away and started um, cranking stuff out. Mm, absolutely. So sort of building on that, and you might want to draw further back on your research and activity as well. What research would you most like to see done this year in 2022? What, what, what is the ideal paper that you would uh, open a journal and suddenly see in there? From my own perspective, and and harking back to what I said before, I'd like to see a renewed focus on humanity mm-hmm. in teaching and learning, and all the facets of that. I saw a call for paper recently in a journal I'd never heard of, special issue on humanness and flexibility, and I thought, that was fantastic. Like, it really struck home for me, because this is what I've always been on about. Um, here's a short anecdote. Years ago at a conference in Banff, you know, our our beautiful mountain town, and I cannot remember the conference. Uh, It was a national conference, and Randy Garrison, who you know of and Mm -hmm. was my dean for for five years and has been a a very good uh, colleague and mentor, uh, stopped me in the hall, and his comment to me was simply, Diane, you were right. It's about the humanity and the community in teaching. It's Mm -hmm. not about the technology. Because those guys, um, the three of them or four of them, counting Liam Rourke, who was a grad student at the time, um, they were very, very interested in the technology because Terry Anderson, actually, his PhD, I believe, is in ed tech. And he's always been very forward-thinking and very knowledgeable in in that area. Anyway, that, that meant a lot for me coming from Randy. But... I saw this call for paper in this journal's issue, and I got really excited and considered right away writing a paper. I wanted to bring forth uh, more, and again, the importance of humanity and humanness of the interplay between the teacher and the learner. I, mm. I don't want to be in an educational system that doesn't place this as a priority. Now, this goes back to your question of scale. And I may be unrealistic, which might be another reason why it's good that I'm retired. (laughs) (laughs) Or or it could be a really good grounds for exploration. (laughs) Well, it could be. It could be. And and I I may still write that paper. I, Mm. I just was so thrilled that somebody had devoted a special issue to that. I'm also want to see the um, continuation of the exploration of the potential of micro-credentials. And I've written about this lately somewhere. Because creating and integrating the micro-credentials into a learner's programs is an indication of humanity at work. Uh, A development or an extension, if you will, of the continued development of prior learning assessment. Because human exercising humanness because it recognizes and values that learning that's been done by the learner outside of the formal institution. So I see this meshed with the whole notion of micro-credentials because all of this is moving out of the traditional ivory tower of the bricks and mortar structure where learning was supposed to occur and yes. only there and starting to flesh out into, into other ways to learn 
and to be accredited in some cases with mm. the micro-credentials for that learning. Yeah, so that that would be interesting. I, I am following that in my reading and um, probably continuing to write, write about it uh, at, at the same time. Mm, excellent. Well, Diane, you've had a long and distinguished career. Who, who are two people you'd recommend as legends of online learning? Uh, one whose work or perspective is significantly influencing you now, and one who you think otherwise has an important perspective to share. Mm. I have a lot of people who influenced me, and they had a lot to say at the time. Now, who's got a lot to say now? Just in case I get a chance to have this included in the podcast, I'd like to um, have a shout out to some people that were really, really good to me and yeah. influenced me a lot. And of course, I've already mentioned Walter Archer, Randy Garrison, Terry Anderson, the triumvirate for me. We had such mm -hmm. a good time in those years and they're all retired right now. I also had a lovely dean, Dennis Foff, at the University of Alberta in my faculty who, who wasn't an online guy specifically, but he was really a good dean, and that was wonderful to have because I was very green at the time. Um, Rick Bernath in Germany, who has retired also but established a foundation to contribute this and that and, and a prize at the annual Eden Conference in Germany. Uli was a mentor too uh, and gave me a completely different perspective. And then in New Brunswick, I was privileged to work alongside Dr. Liz Birch and Dr. Dorothy McCarricker, both adult educators, but both of them taught by distance and were pioneers in, in, in doing that. Of course, both of them are retired too. So currently, I'm thinking about Olaf Sawaki Richter at the University of Oldenburg. Yep, yep. Olaf is a real innovator. Now, another fellow who moves in a different circle and is so knowledgeable and accomplished is Stephen Murgatroyd. Stephen hmm. um, was at Athabasca University as a VP or a director of external relations, but he left before I got there. But we've connected since then, and mm. I have found him just a, a fantastic, knowledgeable, and funny guy. Mm. Another up-and-coming uh, scholar is uh, Gabby Whithaus in England. Um, she's working on her doctoral dissertation. And she also has published, and uh, she teaches as well. I've never met her personally, but we've gone over a lot of stuff together, a lot of uh, writing, a mm. lot of editing, a lot of putting our heads together to figure things out, and I'm very impressed with her. Excellent. Diane, it's been really good having you on the podcast. really appreciate the work you've done and look forward to linking to it for our listeners. Thank you so much for being a leader of online learning. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Mark. It's a pleasure and, and a tremendous honour to have been included. Thank you so much. You can find out more about Diane and her work from our website. That concludes this episode. Be sure to go to our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com, to follow up on this episode's guest. You'll also find links to others whose ideas continue to inspire and teach online learning professionals, and you can subscribe to future interviews. If you know of a leader or legend we've not yet talked to, please do drop us a line at onlinelearninglegends at gmail.com.